Hello, this is Giles Brandreth, and welcome to Rosebud. The name of the podcast is inspired by the film Citizen Kane, in which Kane is haunted by the image of a sledge he was playing on the day he was taken away from his childhood home. The make of the sledge was Rosebud, and that name comes to represent the simplicity and perfect happiness of childhood. In Rosebud, I'll take this as the starting point and find out how these memories have shaped my guests and informed the rest of their lives. This episode of Rosebud is special. Well, actually, I like to think they're all special, but this one is extra special because it's with Lulu. And I have been a fan, or perhaps a bit more than a fan, of Lulu's for, I think, probably for about 60 years. In fact, um, yeah, it's possible because we are the same age. Lulu has been making headlines for so long that sometimes it's easy to forget just how groundbreaking she was in the early days. She was only 15 when she had a top 10 hit with her instant classic, Shout. Her single, To Sir With Love, was the biggest selling US single of 1967. In 1969, she won Eurovision with Boom Bang A Bang. I'm going to try to persuade her to sing it during our conversation. And we all know how difficult it is to win Eurovision. Bring Lulu back, I say. In this conversation, we are going to talk about her remarkable childhood. A difficult, challenging childhood, but I think it made her the person she became. We're also going to talk about remarkable people. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, David Bowie, Sidney Poitier. And you're going to hear things from Lulu that I certainly haven't heard before. They will surprise you. And yes, you may even get a moment of boom bang a bang. Why not? This is Lulu. Enjoy. The very first question I want to ask you, Lulu, is the question I asked everybody. And that is, if you can remember, tell me what is your very first memory? That's a challenge. Mm. First of all, I'm 75, so my memory is, is, uh, <laughs> is not that clear. But I think when you mention, or when my childhood is mentioned to me, immediately I have some fear because I had a pretty chaotic, childhood uh, it involved I mean I loved my parents I love my mother I love my father but because of their childhood they had issues which manifested in in uh, domestic violence alcoholism um, and a shortage of money who were they who was your father who was your mother what were their names my father's name is Eddie Edward Laurie my mother was Elizabeth they called her Betty and she was given away as a child, you know. Um, was she an orphan? Well, she saw, you could sort of say she was an orphan. Her parents were not dead. They, they had five children. She was the middle child. I think in those days, the story is that they didn't have enough money to feed all their children. 
So she was the only one given away. But she, was, she eventually found out. And of course, that resulted in her feeling unwanted, unloved, and insecure. My own father had a, an alcoholic fa father who was also violent. And so those kind of things that sort of designed the start of your life. How did these two meet? They made, uh, my parents? Yeah. Um, I think my parents probably met at a dance hall because my mother liked to dance. My father, not so much. What did he do for a living? How did he earn his money? My father was a, worked in the meat market. Selling as a porter or selling meat? No, he was an awful dresser. An awful dresser? What is an awful dresser? Not an awful dresser, darling. An awful dresser. I think they cut the, you know, the liver and the intestines and the, they're the ones who And this is in Glasgow? This is in Glasgow. So he's an awful dresser in Glasgow, married to Betty the dancer. He was actually a very smart dresser, as it happened himself. Yeah. Because in Glasgow, we're very conscious of style, you know, and mm -hmm. swagger. And uh, he was quite uh, dapper. I'm going to press you, though, for a recollection of you as a little, as a, your first recollection of you as a little girl. Is it in a high chair? Is it in oh a sitting room? Is it in a pram? Is it going to school? Are there any photographs to remind you of that time? Were, were pictures being taken? Yes, there are pictures. There are pictures of me as a baby, little fat thing with uh, fat cheeks, you know. Nothing has changed. <laughs> um, and you were called Ma Marie. Marie, Marie. And I, I would have had, I, I see the picture in my mind's eye is, I have a, what are they, we called it Fuzzy Wuzzy. What would Fuzzy Wuzzy be in English? That's Glaswegian. Um, mohair, I think. Mm -hmm. um, a hat that was very fuzzy wuzzy, mm -hmm. so you can imagine cuddly, and the little fat face inside of it, mm. and the little fat body. I was sitting propped as a baby. And what sort of house or flat would you have been we living in? We called a hoose. A hoose? I, I would always want to talk about my hoose, but it was a flat. And there were five of you? There were four kids. Four kids. Eventually, yes. And what were your brothers and sisters? What, are they, what were they called? I'm the eldest, uh, and I was Marie, and my brother Billy, two and a half years younger than me. And then 10 years younger than me was my sister Edwina. We call her Eddie. And then my brother, two and a half years younger than her, was, is Gordon. So they're quite well spread, the children over the years. And so they stuck together, this couple. Yes, even through the turbulence. And, you know, I loved my parents. I mean, I had, you know, turbulence. Yeah, eventually I was, uh, because I have always been anxious and hid it. You know, only at 75 can you really, I'm quite private, so I don't really talk about a lot of very personal things. And I love my mum, I love my dad, and I knew that their issues were because of their upbringing. And was the chaos though caused by his drinking, or did they both his drink? His drinking and her, I suppose you would, you would call her anxiety or neurosis from the you know her her upbringing and that he had a difficult upbringing as well yes yeah because his father was an alcoholic and quite violent and he inherited as it were the alcoholism so he, he drank too much yes. and he and he, she he would, was violent towards her when he was she, drunk well she would nag him uh -huh. he would react 
and I would be in the middle of it. And because you were the older child, you yeah. were like a mother substitute to your younger siblings, were you? Oh, yeah. At one point later on in life, they said, you don't have to be our mother anymore. We want you to be our sister, which makes me actually want to cry because mm. it sort of pulls on um, my heartstrings. But, yeah, that's what you do. I think when you're the eldest child, that's the role you take. And I think I was and always have been capable, you know, I would take on responsibilities that weren't necessarily mine. And I was the parents and the family. And I used to moan about it. I used to yell at them, I'm the blooming mom and dad in this family, you know. But you know what? I think it's my upbringing and all the the troubles and the difficulties. Um, but there was always a lot of joy too and a lot of music. Helped me to cope with being a, a, a pop singer at 15 years of age. Mm. In the it's 60s. very strange that starting so young. But before we get there, just keeping on this you, the small girl, what was the flat like? Can you remember the flat? Small. It was small. I mean, did you share a bedroom with your brother oh, and sisters? Oh, always, always. always. Basically, yeah. the children were in one room yeah. and your parents were in the, <laughs> the other. other. And uh, it was just, you were conscious of it being difficult, but you just carried on. You were short of money I, as well. I, I was not conscious, oh. really. I was unconscious, actually. Oh. I think that's what happens to yeah. you. When there is... Um, chaos or there's troubles or there's um if one has a lot of fear as a child i now understand you you live in denial really you deny that it's you think it's this is the norm yeah. you don't really analyze it so what you were fearful of was another row row fights come in this evening she's trouble someone would be hurt someone would be die someone would die well you never know if there's going to be a fight you don't know what's going to happen especially where i come from there it was it's right it was rough gosh yeah I mean, people did, neighbours and people did die, did they? In uh, of things, serious, serious issues, yes. Gosh. But your parents didn't get into trouble with the law? No. No. Did you go to school? You I the, did. Do you remember the first school you went to? I think I remember the first school, but what I really remember about school was my uniform. Uh, I liked my uniform. To start with school was, was joyous, but of course, because I... I would have I would have issues at school too because the bigger girls didn't like the fact that I could sing. <laughs> the uniform, what was it? A skirt, a blazer, nice white shirt. Totally, what, what, a skirt, a blazer, sort of kilt like you know, pleated skirt. You had to have white socks. You have to have your shoes. They had to be polished. And because my father had spent a short time in the navy, he was trained <sighs> and trained us. We had to polish our shoes. <laughs> we could see our face in them. So I had a very, very nicely polished shoes, white socks, pleated skirt, uh, shirt and tie. So I learned to do the knot. And I remember learning to do the Windsor knot when I was very young. Um, and my blazer and my badge on my blazer. Very smart. So I, lo- I was so proud of my uniform. <gasps> and who were your best friends at school? Who do you remember from um, your well, school days? To start with, the one I remember is a girl who had the same, practically the same name as me. Her name was Marie. But her name was Marie McDonald. My full name was Marie MacDonald McLaughlin Laurie. <laughs> that was on my birth certificate. But uh, basically, I was called Marie Laurie, and she was called Marie MacDonald. And she had, she had curly hair, and I wanted curly hair. My hair was just straight. <laughs> and I used to say to my mum, oh, she's so beautiful. I love that, her hair. My mother would say, she's hardly got any hair. <laughs> But I just thought she was beautiful. As you do, you know, you fall in love with your 
you know, your best friend, mm. you know, it's, it's, it is a first love in a way. And this would be about the time of the coronation. Do you remember the coronation? Oh, well, that was very special in our house because, you know, my parents were royalists. They loved the royal family. My father had me on his shoulders at the street party and I sang on a golden coach in the street and got my first big, big standing ovation, I suppose. Hey, age five, 1953, age five. How how does On a Golden Coach go? Is it On a golden coach, there's a heart of gold riding through old London town. On a golden coach with a heart of gold that belongs to you and me. Oh, wonderful. I so know. you age five. I entertain, remember that very entertain, clearly. Well, clearly you do, entertaining the street party. My father and, and was so people, proud. Where did this performing instinct come from and how were you able to learn this song and sing it so well? Oh, well, my parents loved records. They loved they had the radio on all the time. They would buy records. There wasn't a lot of money, but, you know, that, that was... that Music is joyful. That's oh. where I know. Uh, and you say your father was a singer? My father had a voice... He sort of had a timbre like Pavarotti. It was oh big, it was powerful, and it was deep, and it was... He sang from his heart and soul. Explain to me about how, how you loved them and how, when clearly there was this fear, yeah. anxiety. What, what, explain mm. the sort of why, what they, your... what they gave you that uh-huh. made you love them yeah. as well as the fear, which I understand because yes, of his yes. problems. Yes, So that's why I always feel that it's, it's it kind of almost important for me to share that. Yeah. I've always felt in the past, if I told things about what went on in my childhood, people would look down on me and they'd look down on my parents. And I didn't want anyone to look down on my parents because as you know, I've said I love them. Basically, I think now I know none of it was their fault. Their behaviors were because of the life they had landed in. And uh, there was a lot of singing Lot. My mother used to sing too, but we used to always tell her to be keep quiet because she she was as good as my father, and it was obvious. And when you're from Glasgow, you sort of see what you think, you know. Um, and uh, my father loved that, and he'd laugh, and she would get very annoyed. I could sing as well as him, but she couldn't. He was really great. So there was a lot of fun, and my parents loved me no matter what went on. I felt their love. Do they love each other ultimately, despite the they ups and downs? They did, yeah. because ultimately they stayed together, which sounds mm. crazy. Today it wouldn't happen, of course. But when my mother died, my mother died first. She was early 70s, and um, she died of cancer. And actually, my father died two years later. I would say you have a broken heart. Oh. Yeah. I can't believe I'm still having tears about this, but mm. it's it's deep. It runs deep. And also it shows you the complexity of people, that there was this, through the drink, there was this violent streak. There was and hell and, and there was, was happiness. Heaven. Yeah, there was hell and there was heaven. There was hell and there was heaven, yeah. exactly. And they are not to blame because they are the fruits of their upbringing. Exactly. So the point of telling the story is to say, stop till you've walked in somebody else's shoes. Don't judge them. And yeah, thank you for being so understanding. And I sort of feel now that I'm, you know, I'm at the age I'm at. I have done a lot of studying. I've done a lot of 
uh, work on trying to understand, as you mentioned, the complexities of life and why we are the way we are, particularly where, where the, why the way I am the way I am. And I feel my father gave me the gift of music. My father sang into my ear, and he said I would put my ear when he was because we you, yeah. when you're little and you're a baby in Scotland, you put a big tartan rug around the baby and you wrap it around yourself and the baby and you shuggle them, you know, when they're crying and they fall asleep. My father used to sing to me and do that, and he said I would literally put my ear right up against his mouth. And uh, I sort of feel he imparted his gift, you know. Um, How did you ensure that when you came to have your son, you didn't repeat the mistakes of your parents, given that they were as they were because of the way they were brought up, and you had this challenging childhood? Um, how did you ensure... I mean, were you conscious of that later when you became a mother? I was Actually, I mustn't make mistakes. semi-conscious, of course. You don't instantly, you know, recover from PTSD. You don't instantly wipe away all the, the things you've learnt. I mean, you say PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. When, when As a I result was, of your childhood, they later said, that hit yeah, you. Yeah, they said when I was having um, treatment therapy, they said, well, I said, how can you... Because only a soldier can have that being in the war. And it was explained that, you know, um, you kind of lived in a war zone. As a child, but you went to school in your uniform. Yes, you in were, my you were very proud. Age five at the coronation, and singing wherever I could. But also, you know, at five, I, my mother put me in for a competition in ah, Blackpool. Oh. So, because we would go to Blackpool occasionally for a holiday on a bus, in a bus, all the way from Glasgow to Blackpool, and everyone would sing the whole way. And and she put me in for a competition. This I remember, little bits of it, but you know. People tell you stories and they become more colourful, they become bigger. Maybe they're embellished a little bit too, but I'll tell you my version of it. So we're in, we're in Blackpool and my mother puts me in for a competition. So they gave me my number. Everyone has a big card with a number on it. My number was number 13. Unlucky for some, some would say. But I'm standing in line and the man who is the MC is calling out on this enormous stage. Number 13, number 13, number 13. And of course... I didn't know I was number 13. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So he walks over to me, and I was very small. I was not tall. I'm still not <laughs> tall, as we know. But So he comes and goes, oh, this little, this little girl is number 13. And everyone laughed. A big joke. And he takes me over, takes my hand, and takes me over to the mic. And uh, I couldn't reach the mic. And they couldn't get it to come down low enough. So they had to put me on a chair. Again, I get huge, you know, um, the laughter, you know, erupts throughout the whole place. And then I start to sing. When you walk in the garden. <laughs> the garden of Eden, which was a big hit at the time for Frankie Vaughan. And my parents had all the records, you see. So I knew all the records that were in the charts. And... Just suffice to say, I won the competition. Yay, yes. well done. Number because I had this big belting voice and was surprised that such a small thing could do that. I mean, I just loved to sing. My father eventually used to say to me, will you no shut up? Because I couldn't stop singing. And at school, were you at all academic? Did you do the subjects I think problem? I was considered to be you know, a fairly good student until I got into my... Uh, well, about 12 or 13. 
And why weren't you doing well enough? Well, I now th- believe that it's because yeah. I wasn't present. Yeah. My mind was worrying about uh, things. About everything. Yeah. And so music, I feel. I keep coming back to that. No, I want to come back to that very quickly. Well, it's, no, it's, it's always a, been my saviour. It clearly was your saviour. Yes, yes. Because that's why, I mean, I think of you as a child star, and you were a child then. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, yes. And that was your escape route. And other than Marie, were there other friends you remember from that time when you were coming towards 10, 11, 12? Aha, uh, Rita Veach mm-hmm. and her, her brother. What was her brother again? Um, he was a good singer. You know, really, where I come from, everybody was a good singer. Fine. I wasn't the only one. Yeah. Did you play games as well? Other yes, than I was very good. Oh, I loved to, I loved to ice skate oh. and I loved to roller skate. And even though we didn't have a lot of money, my father had two or three jobs. Um, and uh, I, I'll be honest with you, some of it would be taking meat out of the meat market and selling it uh. when he shouldn't have done. Mm. So he had a wee job on the side, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he'd <laughs> extra money. Yeah. So if ever I needed skates, I would get skates. Excellent. Ice skates, roller skates, a bike, whatever I needed. They, they did. My parents did the best they could do. And I saw that. So... What makes the change? I know it's going to, the answer is going to be music, but how does how does that? <laughs> I'm a one woman's one woman note. <laughs> how does that happen though? How do you age 13, 14, The school of thinking, well, she's not really pulling her weight. Well, no, no, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Thirteen, fourteen. I really didn't go to school much. Oh. Oh. First of all, five years of age, I did one competition, yep. and then my mother would put me oh. in for other competition, and I was if I didn't come in first, I come in second or third. Um, because I think basically I was small and I had a big voice um, because there were a lot of talented people around. But by the time I was 10, I was singing. My mother had a cousin who was, had an accordion band and I'd do Sunday concerts. I'd do Sunday concerts and they gave me, I don't know if it was 15 shillings. I don't know what it was, but I would get 10 mm. shillings, a lot of money yeah. for this concert. That enabled my mother to have a new dress made for me. I had a sticky out frock made and I'd feel like a queen. Yeah. Special. So you were a child star. I was still doing, yeah, I was working. So I wasn't interested in school. You so can you didn't, you, you, can have, you didn't feel you had to go, you didn't know <laughs> well, I didn't, listen, up. it was always a worry. It was always very scary. I used to beg her, please don't let me go to school, don't want to go to school. And I would go some days and some days I wouldn't. So I'd dodge with my mother's, listen to this, with my mother's assistance yeah so how do we move from you being doing the sunday Sorry, concerts i do rush no no through. i love it uh, how, how do you move from that to becoming 10 i'm doing concerts on a yeah. sunday a man comes and he, he speaks to my mother after so my mother would come with me to the concerts he said he had a son who was just a year older than me or two years older than me he was a drummer in a band called the bell rocks and they'd like me to be their lead singer <laughs> 13 well, it was shocking, really. This was somebody nobody knew. Mm. This was a band, a rock and roll band. But anyway, he talked my mother into it. She would come again with me on whenever the gigs were, every other Saturday or something like that. And um, my father, she would fight with my father because he didn't want me to do it, but she thought I should. Was it successful? In, in Glasgow, yes. And how old? And then they got more and more gigs because how, I was a bit of a draw. How old were the boys in the band? How old were they? Oh, just a bit older than me. Um, they were in their teens, you know, they yeah. were like 16, yeah. 15, 16, 17, you know. And you were the star? 
Yes. I didn't think of it that way, but I was a special guest, yeah. you know what I mean? A special attraction, if you like. I would. I never would use that word. That, to me, was a ridiculous word. Only English people would use that word. Oh. <laughs> Scots would not use that word. They're way too doer. <laughs> Who do you think you are? You know, something special. A, a what? A star? Oh, for goodness sake. No, I wouldn't think I was a star. Hello, Giles here, and I'm delighted to tell you that this episode of Rosebud is sponsored by one of the finest hotels in the world, the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. Anyone who's stayed at the Grosvenor House Hotel will know that one of the things that sets this hotel apart is the amazing team of people who work here. The staff of the hotel are part of a rich history. In the 1930s, the head chef was a man called René Lebeg. He once served an all-green dinner in which every course and every drink matched the green of the table linen, crockery and glasses. And in the 1930s, the hotel employed a team of page boys, impeccably dressed in royal blue suits and top hats. One of these was known as Tiny Tim, the smallest page boy in the world. He was only three foot ten inches tall and had a specially made miniature motorbike made for him to commute home from Park Lane to the countryside where he lived. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. So how did you break out from being with them to the well, next stage? Well, then yeah. I got asked to be in another band called the Glen Eagles. They, they then became the lovers, eventually became oh, the, the lovers, lovers of course. Like the Glen Eagles, excellent hotel. And then the Beatles hit town. I mean, the Beatles, Beatles hit the world. That was, you know, I was 13, 14 at the time. So this is just the beginning of the 60s. Yeah, and then, you know, the world was looking for talent. They were all over this country searching for talent. And so the Daily Express had a competition. All the talent from Glasgow you know, performed, and there were three people who won, first, second, and third. And I don't know if I was first, second, or third, I don't remember, but I was in that three. So what it meant was that those three were um, then allowed to go to London, have a, an audition with a record company. Gosh. And had you become Lulu by then? No. So you were still Marie? Yeah, Marie McDonald, Little Laurie. Very good. And had, uh, did you have a boyfriend or anything? When, oh, oh, well, one of the boys yeah. in the band was so handsome. Oh, good. And a gentleman. Oh. Refined. They and don't come along very often. What was his name? No, well I don't done. like. I don't like a bit of rough. I don't like. No. It. I, I like the gentleman. I Indeed. like a nice well, gentleman. I, I, I'm, I'm attracted. Yeah, you, yeah, you know, you're totally my type. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got that settled. That is settled. That is settled. <laughs> what was he called? This his guy? name was Alec Bell. Alec Bell's a good name. Yeah. He Alec was Bell. a very nice person, came from a very nice family. My parents, you know, got to know his parents, and he was allowed to take me to the pictures. Lovely. And you held hands, and he was your first kiss. I ki we kissed, yes, exactly. Right. Oh, no, he wasn't my first kiss. Don't be silly. I think I kissed my first boyfriend, the first boy when I was about nine. Oh, really? I think I was at school, we were all playing, and, you know, the little girls kiss little boys very innocently, but kind of, oh, it's one of those exciting, that happens, you know, it happens. Didn't you have a kiss at nine? No, not at nine. When did you? You were slow. I, were I slow. certainly <laughs> remember being in love at nine, mm. but I remember the sensation of being in love, not the love object. 
Mm. And I don't think that's interesting. Yeah, in yourself. it was. I was in. I was in love with the idea of being in love. I think I've always been that way. Uh, and I do remember walking. <laughs> this, I a, had a younger brother, an adopted brother, who was ten years younger than me. And when he was, so I must have been around eleven. I remember pushing the the push chair with him in around the streets around Earl's Court, South Ken, in London, where we lived, and it, going near the home of my love object. But I can't remember her name. But I do remember I walked up and it down was, the street because I loved she her. She just lit your fire. Yeah. She'd give it a little peep. And, <laughs> and I would just be going up and down. Hours on end. Just going back down the street where she lived. Yeah. But isn't that bizarre? <laughs> I have often walked on the street before. <laughs> yeah. People do do funny things. I remember a few Human years later. Human beings, we're all the same. You know? I remember we're going the to same. Liverpool Street Station. And I was there from eight in the morning till about seven at night because I was convinced this girl was going to get off a train. And, you I, are and I met every train. You I was running up and down, meeting every train. I knew she came from the east of England. I wasn't sure what platform it was going to be. Oh it turned out I was there on the wrong day. Okay, so this oh. boy, Alec, is Alec. sweet and nice. And he, he was in the band. He sang and played maracas. Oh, lovely. <laughs> and. Um, they kind of took care of me, you know. No. Um, they were very protective. I even found that when I, after I made records, I found a lot of the rock and roll bands were kind of protective towards me. That's lovely. That yeah. is lovely. Yeah. But also you were petite as well. You were small. It's because I, mean, I was so small. You were probably. small. Yeah, so you come to, to London mm -hmm. and what happens next? Well, I go down for the audition and uh, it was with Ron Richards and he turned me down. He said, no, well, he turned us down, I should say. And he said, no, but he said, you should go to Decca. That was EMI. Ron Richards was at EMI. Go to Decca. And there's a man there called Dick Rowe. You should see him. Now, funnily enough, Dick Rowe turned down the Beatles and sent them to, and they went to Ron Richards and got signed. <laughs> so mine was the other way this around. This is the reverse journey. <laughs> yeah. The reverse journey, I go to, to Dick Rowe, and, and he said, yes, he'll definitely give me a, 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 definitely. And at the audition, I sang Shout. Gosh. That's another story we'll have to talk about another day, about the songs in my life, where they came from, and how... How it was quite an interesting and difficult journey for me to get to be who I felt so I was. So you're about 14, 15 at this time. Yeah. So it's, this is early 1960s, 1962. I'd heard the Isley uh, Brothers do it, and I did it in, 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 in Scotland. So it was your number. You came and you did this number. I did that, and I did 24 Hours from Tulsa, which is Gene Pitney song. Yeah. And then I get the invite to go to the recording studio to make the record. This is Shout. I, wait a minute, I arrive there and I'm thinking, oh, probably the Beatles have given them a song. You know, because I think Cilla Black had a record out. I mean, you know, she's yeah. a girl singer. Maybe they've got another one for another girl singer and that could be me. Or maybe some other great writers, somebody that you've written a song for me. They told me I had to do Shout. I was so disappointed because I said, but I've been doing that for ages and that's an old song. Haven't you got a new one? No. I recorded Shout. And um, during the recording, I broke, there was a big furore because, not a furore, there was great excitement, maybe is the word, because they had a ribbon in the mic and I, because my voice was so loud, I broke the ribbon in the mic. This is like, you know, the history that goes down over people. Like, the, this is a story about Elvis. He was playing guitar while recording and his fingers started to bleed and he carried on like a trooper. You know, there's all those stories. But this is true. This is what, that was my story. And then... At the recording, he had invited his sister. Her name is Marion Massey. But Marion became my manager for 25 years. My gosh. Yeah. And was she the person who called you Lulu? 
she for a whole day she said we we're going over all these names and her husband came in her husband jerry went to syracuse university in america so they traveled to america a lot and one of them said well they couldn't think of a name to start for ages they couldn't think of anything that was right but she thought something had to be cute and different because the beatles the rolling stones the animals they all had funny names you have to have a, something that would be instantly memorable and the husband said one thing for sure is she's a real lulu of a kid and Marion said, that's her name. Ah, a Lulu of a kid. That's the way they so, talk yes, in America. Yes, of course, <laughs> absolutely. But I, I, how intriguing. And she said to me, what do you think of that name? I said, I don't mind. It's quite nice. I quite like it. <laughs> and have you liked it over the years? At home, what do oh, people I've call you? Oh, I've grown to, to love it, of course. Uh, it's, been, it's a name that's been very good to me. I mean, I call you Lulu, is that right? Yes. Or should I be calling you Marie? In our more intimate Not moments? very, very. Only my sister sometimes calls me Marie, sometimes. So Lulu is okay. Do you remember, I am Lulu. you probably don't remember this, but 20 years ago, when we had a conversation like this, I, I fantasized that we would get married one day. <laughs> Do you remember this? You probably don't remember it. Can I button? Excuse me, everyone who's listening, hello, are you there? I think he does this with all the women. You know, I'm not party to it, but it's just, at this point in my life, I'm thinking, this is his chat line. It isn't my chat line. I assure you, we've had a lot of very beautiful women on road, but... And you have said this to me, you've reminded no, me of I it have, often. I have ne- we had lunch at Claridge's. I remember it. I do. I've always been extremely fond of you. Well, indeed. And I do remember, because I quoted in the interview, I do remember you saying, well, this is what we'll do when we're married. And uh, <laughs> I, went, I, went, I went along with it. You, went, you did kindly go along with it. And I went along with it too in my head for quite a while. But then I began, I remember thinking to myself, what am I actually going to call her? Can I call her Lulu? Call her? <laughs> okay. What are we going to call her now? <laughs> she, I can't have a wife called Lulu. <laughs> well, I, I, get worried, I get worrying about that. I know what you're uh, Anyway, that's, that's by fun. the by. So, you suddenly become Lulu. You're named Lulu. You oh sing this song, goodness. Shout, and it's a huge hit. It was a bit of a whirlwind. I mean, extraordinary. You're extraordinary. 15 years of age. I know. I, but in some and I was 14 when I recorded it. They oh. just couldn't release it because the, 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 the laws in Scotland are different to the laws in England. And they would not... I think you may have been able to release a 14-year-old teenager's record here, if they lived here, but the Scots would oh, not allow it. No, they were not having it. So, so I had to wait till I was 15, yeah. So at 15, you suddenly became a famous pop singer. And this, for you, of course, was in a way an escape from the childhood. And suddenly, in retrospect, yes. Yeah, you suddenly, and also you suddenly discovered the world of the recording engineers and the other band people. They were like new families to you, and clearly, people behaved well. Very well. You, you were not taken and advantage of as a girl by bands and things. I was never taken advantage of by anyone, really, because I had Marion. She was by me Pick all good. the time, and I, I also, you know, so I have to you know honor her mm. and her name she died and her family you know but you know who else started my career was john lennon and paul mccartney because for them to be on ready steady go the week my record came out and kathy mcgowan she interviewed them yeah. and at one point she said to them so a lot of new releases this week and I know you're up you love to listen to everything that's coming out and you know what's going on you have any favourites this week? and they both said on Ready Steady Go yes. for the world to hear yep Lulu's shout yay yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think I was in the chip shop at the at the time, um, rushing to get back, see Ready Steady Go, because you know the streets were empty mm-hmm. in the sixties mm-hmm. on a Friday night in those days, for it so that everyone could yeah. see Ready Steady Go, and they said that I was their favorite release of that week. Well, uh, the rest is history. Well, you know, really and truly, I, I died and went to heaven. And when did you meet them? <gasps> Very soon after that, and you know. Another thing about me was that I never really cared about British music. I always thought it paled in comparison to American music because I liked the blues, I liked rock and roll, I liked a little bit of country. Um, But we seemed to copy what the Americans did in the pop charts and I always felt it was just a little bit wet. Not really gritty enough for me it didn't have that. And therefore, that's why I sang with an American accent. I always thought the Americans were superior in the, in the entertainment industry, I suppose. And they sort of were, in a way, until the Beatles. So, as a teenage girl, all the hormones and you know, rushing through my body, these gorgeous four boys, and the fact that they were geniuses, you know, it was apparent to everyone. I was so enamored of them and to have met them, for them to have said what they said. For me to finally meet them, they asked for me to be on a TV show. They, it seems they had requested me be on a radio show that they were doing. And I, I was invited to see them at Hammersmith. I think they were doing a pantomime. God knows what that would have been. Oh, it was just a Beatles show that was yeah. like pantomime. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were funny and had a sort of humor all of their own. But <clears throat> so I, I, that's when I, I remember meeting them, really meeting them. And I was speechless. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but they were I, I was kind not, and gentle with oh, you. Oh, they were so nice, so sweet with me. Wonderful. And, and, and as you said, I never had... I never had... Uh, you see, I... I think I am extremely lucky. Like as mentioned before, there were so many great singers in Glasgow. I mean, I often ask myself, why me, why me, why me? And I know I have angels on my shoulders. But having had a big hit with Shout, the problem then comes following this up. Very difficult. How do you sustain this? How do you grow? And were you making money? Was some of the money trickling through? Yes. Were you getting some of it? And that was what was really amazing about Marion. First thing, one of the first things her husband said to me in front of her, we have to get her the best accountant in London Mm. because we are not going to be responsible for her money. She started making Mm. money and it's going to get bigger. So they put me with very old-fashioned, very staid, but very steady accountants who would question me about everything. I'd go to meetings with them, and I swear I never heard a thing. I would zone out, like I did at home, you know. They would go, and and boring, 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 but they would question everything I spent. So that was all secure. Very, very good. But getting from this first step to the next step... The record's tough, tough. And how did that happen? I'm going to jump again, which I kind of of like to do. (laughs) When I worked with David Bowie, just to throw in a big name, (laughs) you know, I'm just showing off. No, seriously, when David Bowie, I first met him and he said, you know, he wanted to, he was going to make a hit record with me. He just absolutely was determined. He said, because they don't get you. The record numbers, the record um, uh, companies don't get you and they don't get your voice either. When I heard that, and I'd been in the business quite a long time by then. I mean, I was already, what, 24 or 25? Oh. Um, so, yeah. nearly 10 years. 
and had television series and, and film and everything. When he said that, I thought, my God. I didn't have the, the language. I wasn't able to articulate what I was feeling, but I felt like I'd been seen and I'd finally been heard. Because I had a lot of issues trying, a lot of trying to convince record companies to let me and record producers let me do things that I wanted to do or working with people that I thought knew more than I did about what I should be singing. So he gave you a kind of freedom. So he recognized, he recognized something in me and I'm just sorry that it didn't last. Well, I mean, you had a, a bit of a fling with him. and I had a number, I had a big rec hit record with him. Oh, no, I, I had a bit of a fling, you had a romantic thing with him I as had well. A, I had, you know. And a big hit record. And I recorded some other songs with him in New York that were never... That were lost is sad and Ooh. really. Can we find them? And no, he can't find. He couldn't find them because he said he would get them to me, and he never did. And certain people say no, they're not. They're not. I had this. I had a relationship with David Bowie, and that was kind of amazing. Really, there was something that he recognized in me, and something we recognized something in each other. And then <clears throat> um, when I went to New York after the first hit, you know, quite a few months after the first hit, he was involved in a lifestyle that was a little frightening to me. Yeah. And I ran. Because you've always been quite a straightforward person in your own life, despite being surrounded as a child by chaos and in later life by some problematical people. You yourself... <laughs> Uh, my observation is you've tried to plod on doing your thing. I've done my best, but at that point, for sure, I, I sensed danger. And, and I would say, and I have never said this before, I don't think, that he, it, I almost threw myself into John Frieda's arms and I married John. Uh, it was like that was danger and this was not danger. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've jumped the gun again. You've jumped you know, the gun. I just, we have to, well, this is about first memories, so don't worry, we won't be too much longer. Um, <laughs> but though I've decided what we're going to do when we do get married. We're going <laughs> our honeymoon, it's going to be a business. We're going to do some business. You call That's, me Lulabelle. <laughs> we're going to go to New York on our honeymoon, and we're going to go and see if we can find somewhere. The David Bowie tracks. It would be, fasc would be fascinating. Huh. I mean, there must be someone. No one well, you know, one of the them. songs I recorded, uh, and I don't know who told me. I mean, it may have been him. It may have been somebody else. There's a song that he has on his Young Americans album called Can You Hear Me? Can You Feel Me Inside? Show your love, love. Take it and ride. Take it and ride. Take it and ride. That is a great song on that album. And I recorded it. I would like to hear how I sounded. I can't imagine I sounded better than, than him, even though it's been said I did do The Man Who Sold the World as a better version. But he produced it. He produced it. We're going we're gonna to unearth all this stuff. <laughs> you know, no, for our twilight years, this will finance our twilight years. <laughs> our travels. Yes, exactly, around the world. The movie, you mentioned the movie. So 
Shout. Which is so I would love or the one yeah. I've just done. The, well, both of those. We'll come to the one you've just done in a moment because this is about you sustaining the career. You're still doing what you were doing yes, then. Yes, this is, yes. But to Sir With Love is the mm. first time I saw you on the screen. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, uh, because I was the same age... I was age, 16 or 17. I was allowed to be physically attracted to you. <laughs> For older people who were, it would have been a bit sort of... Ugh. But if you're the same age, it's a perfectly acceptable thing. This is when I first had the hots for you. Um, it was this film. Oh, <laughs> you can see love. I get slightly embarrassed. Know, I'm well, not good at taking I'm, compliments. I'm feeling embarrassed <laughs> sharing this You're with you. You're not. Well, you love doing this. I, no, I'll tell it. you what I do love doing. Love I do it. love that. <laughs> Many, many years later, I was in Venice, and I was on the island of Torcello. Do you know the island of Torcello? I do. It's off the, off the Venetian lagoon. And sitting at the next table was Sidney Poitier. And I thought, how am I going to get over to say hello to Sidney Poitier? So I'm afraid I went to... You used my name? Yes, I did. <laughs> you said, Lulu and I are going to get married. <laughs> I didn't say that, but we had, we had recently met on um, TVAM. This was in the 80s. Oh, yeah. And so I went over and I said, oh, oh, I was with Lulu last week. And I'm afraid this bit sure I didn't invent. And she said... I bet he was gracious. He was gracious. Sent you her love. And he said, well, how did she know I'd be here? I said, oh, oh no. Nah. caught you out. He was such a gentleman. My God. He mm. looked fantastic. He is. He was. And he was... My wife then came up and he got up immediately and was so... Oh, his courtesy was... Refined. It was. Again, that lovely word. I like that word. Now, mm. So how did that come about, this movie with, with Sidney Poitier? Marion's sister, my manager's sister, worked for an agent called... John Heyman, his son, is now one of the biggest producers in the film industry, responsible for Harry Potter. Wow. So she worked for John Heyman, and, and they were looking for kids to be in a film about a book that was written by um, a black Englishman, and James Clavell had gotten hold of the book, approached Sydney, and together they, I think they produced this film. But Dave, but but James also directed it, and you know James wrote King Rat, yep. Shogun. Yeah, can you remember your first day on the set? Being on the set, were you apprehensive? Terrifying. Well, first of all, I spoke like that. I had a very thick Scottish accent because I was sixteen, and had only left Glasgow the year before, and they were all English. Some of them were Cockney, and then. I mean, I might have looked at the script, but I, all I was looking for was where my part was, and there was virtually a couple of lines. But my manager, Marion, who was very smart, had said to them, yeah, they, well, James Clavell came to see me. I was on tour with the Beach Boys, by the way. And he came to see me in the thing, and he came backstage, and he was very, very tall. James, and he had a limp, you know, because he was in he was in the Canadian in the army and in the air force, and he was injured during the war, and that's why he could write those books about type, you know, about the Japanese and the war and everything. So um, <clears throat> because of his own experiences, so he was very lofty, even though he was a Canadian. He sort of had sort of spoke Queen's English, you know. And he said to me, mm, slightly amused, which annoyed me. I thought I was the big cheese. <laughs> I'm on tour with the Beach Boys. <laughs> and he says to me, I'm making this film. And I'm like, yes, I know. He's telling me the obvious. I'm talking to myself, telling me the obvious. Come on, hurry on, on with it, on with it. What is it you want? Why is he here? He said, do you know, and I might put you in my film. I thought, oh, my God, you're so pompous. I was thinking to myself, dialogue going on in my head. And he said, but if I do, I'd like you to change the color of your hair. Well, that was it. That was it. I thought you can shove your film somewhere that's really uncomfortable. 
And he said, you don't like that, do you? I got the part, because that's what he wanted from me. That's what he wanted. He wanted me to react. So when we did the film, I, we would be on camera and he'd say, okay, you two, do it there, 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 you go there, there. Right, you sit, stand in the front. I'm going to say, and he's going to come out, I want you to react. I want you to say whatever you would say. Just naturally say whatever you'd say. So Sydney would walk out on up the, a corridor in, in the school and he'd be with um, the, his love interest, the other teacher. And I would say, oh, by this time I had acquired a Cockney accent. Look at her. She loves herself, doesn't she? Look at her. Bet she thinks he fancies her. He doesn't, you know. He's just very nice. I mean, I would just talk yeah. like that. Anyway, he kept a lot of it in. Mm-hmm. We have to cover some more firsts before we go. There's so many firsts that we could cover. Uh, yeah, I know. It can go. It could go I'm 75. Uh, I, I, 60 years. I know. But I, I, I can't believe Maybe it. Maybe part one, can part I two, say, part three. Uh, I mean, uh, we, uh, or a whole series. I mean, actually, but what we're doing is a married couple, which is, which is fantastic. <laughs> It is fantastic. As we travel around the world, the man is a dreamer. I can tell you, it's lovely. I love track. you for that. People will listen at first because it's a new Bowie um, Lulu uh, track. Right. With every episode, can you hear me? Exactly. Can you feel me inside? <laughs> and I say, who is that silly old man? He's married in the end. Honestly, honestly, he's ludicrous, but she's still fantastic. Uh, we haven't mentioned your first, and this is an important question. Mm. The moment you had your first in fact your only child you only got one son haven't you oh yeah uh, what was that like the moment you first saw your boy do you remember that do you remember the, the birth do you remember that as a as i had a to have a cesarean you? because you he wanted excuse the language you want to come up bum first you know so that was going to be very difficult he was breech yeah. and i had this amazing um gynecologist his name was george pinker famous, he, famous. Very, he is very famous now yeah. yes so I think a couple of weeks beforehand, he said, you know, we're going to try and move him, but he doesn't want to move this boy. <clears throat> so they took him away from me. They knocked me out and they took him away from me. And I had to wait because he had conjunctivitis. They kept in a, him in a special ward. And eventually I said to John, I want to see my son. I don't want to. It's like the day was going yeah. and I'd had the baby at about eight o'clock in the morning. John said, hold on. And he came back with a wheelchair, put me in the wheelchair. Wow. And we zoomed off to look at Jordan. And he had this little nose and face all looked beaten up. He looked pathetic. Well, because he was on his own. And Mm -hmm. I was looking at him through a piece of glass, you know. It was kind of poignant but sad and, you know, emotional and, whoa. Yeah, And, and, you know, because I had two brothers and a sister I thought I'd have lots of children and didn't work out that way and that's always been a kind of a sadness um, but the good thing is you're very close to him and oh you, my you have God. grandchildren now don't you I have two grandchildren so who I'm completely obsessed with and wow. they love their nana so in the end it's all worked out <laughs> oh we, yeah everything has worked out now the last thing i'm going to ask you is for your what what you think you've learned in life i feel so bad the things i wanted to ask you about the eurovision song contest oh and that was another amazing i mean well, who knew? oh my god it was amazing and ludicrous and mad what and was the number you sang my heart goes boom bang a bang boom oh, bang a bang oh. when you are near 
yeah, boom, bang, up. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, the, you're about to do a tour, aren't you? Do you sing all these numbers in the tour? I am go- I'm not going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do, but of course I'd have to do boom, bang, you, We want all this. The audience want to do it by themselves anyway, so yeah. you ha- can't, not, can't yeah. not give people what they want. And more. If you've ever seen me on tour, just let me say, you won't have seen me like this. Good. This is actually, I'm announcing it for the first time now. Good. This is my farewell tour with family and friends. Because last year I did a, a tour that was kind of grueling. It was successful. It went well. Uh, but you need an army to be a success in your career these days. And I felt unsupported. And I felt... But then I turned 75. And I thought, you know what? I want to carry on working, but I want to do it differently. I've learnt, and I've also become a slightly different person. I'm not afraid to be vulnerable. That's what I'm relying on. <laughs> I'm going to say so. We this. <laughs> Yeah, the point is, we've hardly been able to... <laughs> I'm incorrigible. Are you we've, we've hardly touched on anything. I mean, 50 years. The point is, after 50 years, you're still doing it. Oh, honey, I'm still doing it. At, you're still the top of your game. You were appearing in movies then, you're appearing in movies now. Uh-huh. You were touring with the Beach Boys then, you're touring family and friends now. Uh-huh. On it goes. You are phenomenal. You've been recognised by the Queen. We haven't talked about your first encounter with oh, the Queen. What, no, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. My first encounter with the Queen. But what about the fact that I got an OBE, and it wasn't given to me by our late Queen. Oh. It was given to me by our King. Of oh, course. And I had the nerve and the cheek to say to him. <laughs> I'm sure he put his eyes to heaven quietly, but I said to him, "You know, with no disrespect to your mother, I'm actually quite happy that it's you giving me." This. Oh my God. He was so sweet because I think he's a very kind person. He's a very kind person. And you know, we were born the same month, the same year. I don't think we're. we're I mean, really? We're, we're all the same age. Oh, well, I know. You know, it was a very, as they say, it was a very good year. It was a very good yeah. year, but we'll obviously continue uh, just yeah, with part two of Lulu another day. But I have to ask you, as you look back, mm-hmm. what is the first lesson you'd like to share with people listening? who think you are uh, remarkable and amazing Ooh. and extraordinary. What is the lesson you've learned from life? What do you want to share with oh people? Oh, my goodness. That's a big question. That really needs some contemplation. But I don't think you're going to give me time. You want me to answer quickly. Ooh. I've learned so much. And actually, maybe that's the answer. I've learned so much, and I know that I know nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I, I know I'm bursting into tears is that Harriet says don't burst into tears with her. She said this is our producer beforehand. <laughs> I'm going to burst into tears because our conversation is ending. Oh. <laughs> 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 I'm so sorry because uh, oh, I think you have. No, you control yourself. Control I yourself. <laughs> no, I think I've no, I know nothing. There's, there's more to learn. There's more. And there's more. There used to be a comic who did that. Do you remember? He was fabulous. <laughs> what I want to say... <laughs> what I want to say, Lulu, is that I think what you have learned is that... <laughs> yes, there has been... That we can laugh at whatever's gone on. But the point is there has been pain and difficulty in oh, your life. Oh, but so much joy. That's the point. Are you kidding? My real philosophy is the glass 
is not half empty. It's half full. <laughs> and I can't wait for the next however many years there is. As people can <laughs> Can you shut him off now? My glass. Edit now. Edit no, don't, now. Don't press the button. Because we can edit this in. And my glass isn't just half full. It's actually overflowing. Flowing. Oh, he's Thank got all you. the right answers. Can you stand in? For the joy of your company. We're at the Grove House Centre. Where we have been. They've oh, offered get us on the honeymoon it. suite. Thank Lulu. Thank you very much. Well, that's the last ever episode of Rosebud. This is actually coming to you from an island in the Caribbean where we're having our honeymoon. It's going very well so far. Um, I'm just being ridiculous now. Uh, dream on, Giles, dream on. I, I, obviously, I love my chat with Lulu. So my thanks to her for her brilliant company. And I will be with you again next week with another interesting, intriguing, unexpected guest. We've had an email from Roy Smith. He writes, Hello, Giles. By a strange coincidence, my two earliest memories both took place on the 22nd of November, but two years apart. The first was in 1961. I remember being told by my mum to go and sit on my potty, which was hiding behind the sofa, while two men came into the room with a stretcher to collect my grandmother, who had sadly passed away. I don't think this experience traumatised me, but I do remember seeing the men arrive and then dipping my head down so they wouldn't see me doing my business. The second was just two years later, on the 22nd of November, 1963. I'm certainly one of those people who knows where they were and what they were doing on the day JFK was assassinated. I was seven, and I was sitting eating my tea at the coffee table when the news came on the television. I don't think I really knew the impact of this event until much later. Well, I remember, of course, if you were alive then, I'm sure you remember too. It's a good time to think back. What were you doing? We, I was at a boarding school, and we were down somewhere, in one of the sort of outhouses of the school, having a kind of Friday evening lecture. And word came, and I think the lecture was abandoned, and we walked back to the school. I think they had a special assembly. And people were very emotional. Um, well, we were teenage children, I suppose. Lots of tears. I remember the next day, people wore black armbands. John F. Kennedy. It seemed to be sort of the end of the world, the end of civilization. Strange. Anyway, that's my recollections of the 22nd of November, 1963. Your early recollections are always welcome here at Rosebud. Hello at rosebudpodcast.com is where you find us. And I hope we'll find you tuning in again this time next week, or whenever it is, because there's a back catalogue as well. I mean, literally, dozens of intriguing people since we began this last year with Dame Judy Dench. Several dames have come our way since then. A few nights, and I think the odd Oscar and BAFTA winner... Great writers too. Oh, so many interesting people. And more to come. Bye. Thanks so much for listening.
Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts, and music by Phil Leppard. <laughs>